We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with Rachel Block as the special guest in Milton's Cottage with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we should describe the room we're in, really. It's, it's extraordinary. We're in, we're in, I suppose, his sitting room? There's a huge Inglenook fireplace, all, all sort of lovely old wooden beams. Yeah, in the we're sort of in, almost in the fire. We're actually here. in the fireplace, yeah, <laughs> yeah. at the moment. And, Luckily, um, the fire is artificial here, otherwise, I'd be getting burnt <laughs> out of my clothing. Stone flag right floors. Side. How old's the cottage? Cottage so have... dates back to the Elizabethan era, so it's late 16th century. 16th century, yeah, so there we go. So, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and Milton lived here in 1665, I think, that sort of thing, yeah. fleeing the plague. And. He took refuge here, just like we are taking refuge. And around the wall, so it's, of course, timber beams and plastering. And we've got pictures of the parliament that decided to finish off Charles I. We've got Cromwell behind you over there. Milton was his minister of foreign tongues, kind of a translator. And And spin doctor. And spin doctor. 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 He's the Alistair Campbell of his day. Yeah, Yeah, so he wrote the justification for chopping off the head of Charles I to uh, the rest of Europe and justification of the, in inverted commas, pacification of the Irish, would that be the way they describe it? Observations on the Irish rebels. Observations on the Irish rebels, (laughs) there you go. And we've got um, various historical or maybe replica historic documents around the walls. Anyway, you should definitely visit here. It's really, really good. And there's Milton's chair where reportedly he sat while he was um, dictating Paradise Lost. And one thing we haven't mentioned is where it is. It's actually in a a very nice little charming Buckinghamshire village called Chalfont St Giles, which isn't terribly far from... Uxbridge and the end of the Met line on the tube. and uh, Alphonse and Giles, you yeah, may remember it from funny. Viz comic. It's a real place, as in, ooh, me Chalfonts. Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, it, it is Cockney rhyming slang, it is. Yes. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> getting back to Milton and God, you were talking about having strong father figures. Mm. And I know that in some places, once when I was working in Cuba, in the Garden of the Parliament there, they have a statue of Lucifer, the fallen angel who was like a personification of Cuba upstart against the powerful United States. So this idea of resisting a totalitarian leader or state, we would normally think of as a good thing, although in that reading, God's the totalitarian tyrant and Lucifer is the the free-thinking rebel, mm. I guess. Is that how you would read it? I think I think quite a lot of people have read it that, that way. Was it Shelley who said that Milton was of the Devil's Party? Um, and so I think, yeah, when you read the text, then yes, I think Satan is the one who engenders the sympathy and God is the kind of absolute law. And is it too early to mention the woman? Well, this is maybe we the point, because we're all later? thinking Satan oh. is, you know, he seems like a much nicer guy than we thought mm. until you until, realise yeah. that. So my big bugbear with Paradise Lost that I always think we skip over, it's a very motherless text. So you don't, the only mother figure that you have in there is Sin. And Sin is born of Satan's head when he decides that he's going to kind of challenge God and he leaves God. And then he's kind of falls, I think is it nine days, Kelly, he falls um, to hell. And, and before all that happens, he gives birth to Sin. He then rapes her immediately. 
And then she gives birth to um, a son called Death. So Satan basically gives birth to son and death, and they kind of stem from him. And Death rapes her too, and they, she spends the whole of eternity with hellhounds in her stomach who claw away at her womb. And I kind of read this as this, this is like the most horrific graphic thing that happens. And very rarely do I ever hear that there's any kind of voice given to it, which again, going back to kind of past, looking back into our past 60 years ago, is exactly what I think happened to us, really. All of these women that, I mean, just look at Jimmy Savile at the moment, you know, all of these people who said that something was happening to them and were ignored and were pushed down because of this enigmatic figure kind of leading the way, absolutely silence. So I kind of, I wanted to, I wanted to, I know that there's this whole thing about not having females raped in your novels, that it's a bad thing. And um, But at the same time, I think you can't ignore it. So I have one, one of the women tells her story that she was raped and that it just completely went under the radar and, and you know, kind of it caused all sorts of distress for her, as it obviously would. So you, you mention it, you don't have a graphic representation of it. No, 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 yeah. no, it doesn't happen. In the novel, she talks about it happening. But I wanted to kind of reference some of the things that happened to, for example, Alice or to this other character 60 years ago that hopefully nowadays wouldn't happen or you would be able to access help or you would be able to say that this was happening in the same way that hopefully Jimmy Savile would never happen nowadays. So on a recent episode, mm. we had Nina de Gramont on author of The Christie Affair about when Agatha Christie disappears. And a backstory in that is interestingly about mother and baby homes in Ireland. Yeah. And we were talking about this and it's in both parts of both sides of the border even up until the 1980s and Steve you were saying oh, I don't know if we quite kind of had that sort of thing in England but perhaps it, it wasn't so much so directly associated with the church so it features in your book but it's not so much a church thing as a as a municipal mm. sort of a, an institution where women who are inconvenient annoying so deemed yeah uh, or maybe i had mental health issues or got pregnant or or just in the way got stashed and potentially victimized again yeah in the first half of the last century absolutely you know we all know that that happened don't we and it's it's i th again hopefully that would never happen again but it's just one of those horrific kind of pasts that we have to face um and I, yeah, I think again, a crime novel. It's not. A, this is not a deeply serious crime novel. It's a who done it. Um, but at the same time, it's nice to be able to reference those things and acknowledge them. But it's also the fact that people like Savile aren't unique. Yeah. And, and certainly, when you look at things like the Weinstein um, uh, case in America, incredibly powerful. Mm. You know, famous, rich women also felt disempowered that they couldn't come forward, and yeah. and and now, of course, are able to. Um, because they knew it would destroy the career. I mean, it, it still exists to some degree now. It's amazing. I talk to people I know who work in sort of Hollywood, and they were saying it's still now uh, almost taboo to come out and admit you're gay. Still, still, there are actors in Hollywood who who will not admit um, to their sexuality because they think it's going to ruin their roles or it's not going to do this, it's not going to do that. So it's still there. The undercurrent's still there. Mm. It, I mean, Me Too and various things like that, and... Black Lives Matter as well to some degree. It's all done a lot of good, but it's still bubbling. It's still bubbling. There is still this idea that if, you know, even though you are the person who's been badly done by, 
that you can't speak out because it'll be more disadvantageous for you to do so than to actually be honest and, and admit what's happened. It's it's not good, is it? It's not good. But I th- it's always been with us. Mm. It's always been with us. And it's. Um, I'd like to think it's getting better. But mm. the, the optimist in me hopes it is, certainly. It occurs to me we haven't actually asked you to tell us about the book <laughs> we got so distracted yeah we've gone quite else. highbrow and the book so, isn't too highbrow at all well, maybe gives a kind of a, an, an outline of the setup <laughs> so yeah it's quite it's it's a it's a crime novel so there is a man in the dead of night the week before easter and he falls from the cathedral tower which is almost 150 foot high um and the whole prologue is is him kind of in his fall, so he's clinging to the roof and he's having thoughts and um, and so you see a little bit of him before he dies and he does die and I'll ruin it but it's you're only a few pages oh, in. I'm going to read it now. <laughs> Do you want to read a wee bit of it? We'd love to see how you're reading that. I always think just it's read a tiny bit from awful the to listen to no, <laughs> me read a book. It's only annoying if you go on too long. <laughs> okay. Read, read a tiny bit. All right, yeah, I'll do a couple of paragraphs. Have you got enough paragraphs. life? Yes, yes, I'm yeah. sure. I've got, I've got my very vehicles on somewhere. So right. here we have exclusive <laughs> short excerpt from the beginning of The Fall by Rachel Block, read by Rachel Block. Okay, so it's the prologue. Help, he shouts, help. The wind is cold this high up. The cathedral roof has caught his fall, but it will not hold him for long. The night is dark like a cloak. It's such a long way down. What is it? Why am I here? He thinks about the evening, about the words spoken. If he knows, accepting it is hard, and working out how, about who. He spins his thoughts like plates, trying to keep them all suspended, but one by one they fall, crack. The cathedral tower rises high, its viewing platform above him, and he lies flat against the sloping roof. His breath comes quickly. He notices everything. The night air smells sweet, tree blossom, freshly cut grass. Someone must be up late, a fire pit, with its flecks of ash rising from a nearby garden like fireflies. Easter is almost here. Rebirth. So much to lose. Short breaths, his chest rises, his foot slips and he scrambles to steady himself. He'd tried inching his way back up, but he'd only slid further. If he can hold on until someone sees him. I <laughs> <laughs> already know that he doesn't manage to hold on. He doesn't know. Poor old Tim. Well, especially not when the book is called The Fall. Yeah. <laughs> and so this this guy plummets from the roof. He plummets, and, and Willow, the protagonist. I, I always like to have a female protagonist with the male police officer because I like the two different perspectives on the same case. It, I kind of brings it to life a bit more. And she is arriving because there's been some terrible accident on the M25. So she's dropping off these. Um, exhibits and she gets there so late that she's there just in time to see him fall and so she is then kind of haunted by this death and drawn into the um, investigation and was he was he pushed did he fall was it suicide or was it something more sinister (laughs) more sinister than pushed (laughs) (laughs) well i like to think it's it is sinister. I've yeah, read it. It's it pushed and called names. <laughs> so let's hear from somebody else in our illustrious audience. Very simple question. Did you climb the tower? I did. I had a private tour. This lovely lady called Laura took me and a friend came along as well and we went all the way around the cathedral and she showed us all the secret parts. 
So things like horsehair hair was originally used when they were making the plaster in the cathedrals to kind of strengthen it out. And there's sections where there's kind of actually horsehair sticking out of the wall. So these bits all went in because I wanted it to have a real sense of place. Um, she showed us the, the belfry with its original wood. Um, the bells have all been changed, but there's original kind of Norman paint. The cathedral was built over kind of a long period of time. You know, bits were added to it and added to it again. So it's quite Norman in places and, and obviously loads of kind of the, the Roman origins. So it was absolutely fascinating. So we went up to the tower and I took some photos and did a selfie. And, um, yeah, felt quite terrified because it's really high up. Were you doing a selfie clinging, looking over the parapet? <laughs> as if you That'd be more of a helpy, wouldn't it? Hey, <laughs> well, they bring out this footstool. So I put the footstool in the novel as well. They keep a footstool behind the door. Yeah. To help people get pushed over. <laughs> so that people can have a really good look. Um, so the vergers climb the tower every day, even now. Every day they climb the tower. So even though kind of my verge is climbing the tower and he's kind of in his 80s, he would have done it every day of his life. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. I was so lucky. Research is sometimes really fascinating and enjoyable and sometimes really distressing. So who here would, if you're on top of a tower with a, a low parapet, you're going to plummet to your death and somebody says, go and lean over and have a look. You go, stand, on sure. stand, <laughs> stand on this stool. Stand on this stool. Have a closer look. Who would? I wouldn't. Okay. But it's, uh, they're, they're fascinating buildings anyway. I mean, it's my favourite thing if you go into a, a cathedral is to look for the misericords. Uh, and they're these little fold-out platforms that people would put up when they're, when they're kneeling in prayer and things like that because the carvers who decorated them quite often hid little messages and hid little allegories, almost like the cartoons of their day, little, little satirical statements. And some of them are quite obscene, hilariously. You know, some bloke showing his bum and things like that. They're, they're, they're hilarious and they're hidden from view when the, uh, normal worship takes place. But I love things like that. It's, it's, um, I'm not a religious person, but I love visiting churches and cathedrals. Oh, just, so, there's so much history there. It's history, there? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It is, it is living history because mm. it was... I mean, these, these huge buildings were raised, you know, to, to say, whoa, look, this is the church. This is how wonderful the church is. You know, it's all about... And particularly, it's all about making people look up. It's making people look up at God. And when you see those incredible vaulted ceilings, love it, absolutely love it. So how are you viewed in St Albans? Here we are in Chalfont St Giles, thinking very positively about you. But in St Albans, <laughs> are they thinking, oh God, she makes it seem like a hellhole of crime, especially, you know, people saying, and here is our beautiful cathedral. Oh yeah, that's where the abusive murderers kill work. people. <laughs> I, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm just going to carry on. <laughs> Do your neighbours whisper behind their hands as you go past? So I, I live just outside of St Albans. I don't live in St Albans itself. But one of my neighbours, they're all very supportive and very lovely. And they always kind of tell me when they've read the books. But one of my neighbours got a bit cross with me once because I um, I didn't... I, I Someone died. And, um, and then there was a, a kind of... A, a road accident that wasn't really connected to the death. So is I, this in the book? No, this is Scorched Earth. This is the second okay, book. Okay, so this is a fictional road accident. It's a fictional a, road right. accident, sorry, in the novel. Um, and it, it fulfilled its purpose because Martin Janssen's wife and his children are in an accident. So I didn't follow it through with kind of what caused the accident. She was so cross and she pulled me aside and she and she's lovely. So she's, you know, not in a mean way. Said, I just, I needed to know. I needed to know what happened. So I think when people know what you've, you know, what you've done and they've read your work, they're, 
and they know you, yeah, they're able to take you to task. My mum got really angry with Scorched Earth because I don't want to ruin anything, but a dog dies. And um, she phoned me up. She, she said, but, you know, I was really upset, Rachel. I was like, but mum, like, kind of, you know, people have died in the novel. And she was like, but I know, but it's, I'm just so yeah, upset. It's a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's is, is that the most kind of the harsh reaction, the harshest one you've had? Well, I'm going to ignore all the reviews that oh, okay. aren't particularly lovely because, you know, we always get a few of those. Yeah. So, yeah. You, you know. just wait till it transfers to telly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, the weird thing about reviews, I mean, we've talked about reviews a lot with, with other writers mm. as well. And the thing is that if someone doesn't like something, they will immediately write a review. Yeah. If someone thinks it's brilliant, they won't necessarily. And the other big problem with reviews is it takes something like 15 good reviews to cancel out one bad review. So you can't stress about them too much. No. You know, at the end of the day, it's if people are enjoying it and the books are selling, that's all that matters. Yeah, that's I think that matters. people who know you are much less likely to be mean to your face. But it's, yeah. like, it's like the road rage, isn't it? You would never speak to someone face-to-face -face in the way that you get angry with them in a car. It's a very different environment. Well... Oh. <laughs> I, my best and worst review was someone saying if I didn't change the ending, he was going to come over and punch me in the face, which, of course, made me think, well, that ending's brilliant. I'm not changing it. <laughs> and I haven't seen him since he's read it. So he hasn't had the opportunity to carry out his threat. And we'll have to see what happens when he does. My worst review is on is on the US Amazon website where it, it goes to saying, this was a terrible product. I, it didn't work properly. It, it certainly didn't do what it said on the on the label. And I'm thinking, what? And I'm, I think I think I was thinking they were all go. And at the end of it, um, I realised that she was actually, and it is she. She was she was actually um, reviewing a kind of bleach cleaner, and and it obviously for some reason put it on my book. Stephen Colgan's book failed to yeah, clean my toilet. I know, and I, I have no idea why. But the big problem was it was a one-star review and it dragged down my my levels and i appealed to amazon about it they said nothing we can do about it we yeah. didn't leave the review i said but you can see it's not for the book <laughs> it's for bleach but um yeah strangest review i've ever had what reviews have people here left i wouldn't leave a negative review because i think someone's put their heart and soul into a book so why would you leave a negative one whereas if it's good then i've only done about two or three but yeah. What about if she murders loads of dogs? Would you? Leave <laughs> <laughs> uh, I own I'm a dog. Not doing it <laughs> my favourite review, I, my, my favourite bad review I ever read. There was a there was a West End show in the nineteen fifties called A Good Time, and the Evening Standard review was no. That was the, that was, that was the entire review. <laughs> Brilliant. On that note, let's come to the end of part two of this episode of Weed Like a Word with me. Paul Waters and me, Stephen Colgan, featuring Rachel Block in Milton's Cottage. And we'll see you in part three. <laughs> <laughs>